How can mortality reviews from previous major military operations guide injury prevention and future combat casualty care efforts? Stick around and find out on War Docs Podcast. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we have partnered with AMSIS, the Society of Federal Health Professionals, and its peer-reviewed journal, Military Medicine, to bring you a discussion with an author of a selected paper in the current issue of the journal. We hope that these interviews with the authors bring you additional insights, provide actionable take-home messages, and also answer some common questions from these studies that you may have. The link to today's Military Medicine Journal article can be found in the podcast show notes. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. Russ Kotwald of Wardocs. Russ, thanks for joining us today. Doug, thank you very much for having me. Russ, you wrote an article entitled U.S. Military Fatalities During Operation Inherent Resolve and Operation Freedom Sentinel. And OAR was in Iraq in 2014 to 2021. And OFS was in Afghanistan from 2015 to 2021. Can you tell us a little about the reasons why those two time periods are important and any significant differences in the military missions between those two operations? I'm of the firm belief that looking at casualties and fatalities by operation is very important as tactics, the mission, the various things change in time when you're making comparisons between countries and combat operations. And so basically, for the last 20 plus years, we've actually sustained uh, five major combat operations, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation New Dawn. Operation Inherit Resolve, and Operation Freedom Sentinel. And, and so this specifically was looking at the last two of those combat operations, which was Operation Inherit Resolve and Operation Freedom Sentinel. And so Inherit Resolve was in Iraq, and Freedom Sentinel was in Afghanistan. And the purpose was for supporting Iraqi security force operations against the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, so Eastern Mediterranean, Southwest Asian region. And then as you look at OFS, was in Afghanistan, and especially during a time when it transitioned to counterterrorism, train, advise, and assist type operations. And so that's very important because as the military changes the operations, it can change the resources and the rules of engagement. And I believe when you when you study things through time, trying to be a little bit more specific and not group everything into one grouping is helpful. So to give you an example, it's like comparing the state of, of South Dakota as compared to Texas. And so two different areas of our country that may have different trauma systems and may have different uh, methods and different regions and a lot of different things. And so, yes, you can look at the fatalities from all the United States, but then as you look at each individual state, there might be some nuances and then even some nuances between regions within the state. And so I think that's why it's very important to look at it from all different levels. Yeah. So before we go too far, I want to do a little bit of definitions. And you've written several other papers that are relevant to battlefield injury and fatalities. Can you explain to the listeners 
some of these important definitions in your analyses. And the first one I'll start with is DNBI versus BI. So disease, non-battle injury versus battle injury. What, what's the difference? So when you talk about cause of death, there's only two causes of death, especially when you talk to a forensic pathologist or pathologist, and th those two causes of death are either injury or disease. And so a lot of people confuse different terms. And so we try to set that straight within the manuscript so that, that folks can follow along with what we're saying and how we're using the, the terminology. So cause of death is either injury or disease. And so then as you're looking at the TNBI or disease non-battle injury versus battle injury, specifically, we're actually separating the injury component. And even in the manuscript, we separate the disease from the non-battle injury as well, so that we can actually look at the, the differences that occur between the two combat operations. And so when you talk about battle injury, battle injury, from a pure standpoint, you probably say that equates to somebody who received an injury from an enemy force. Forensic pathologists and the military will actually call them hostile homicides versus non-hostile homicides. Both are homicides, but that's how they, they, they term it. In this manuscript, we try to uh, look at both of those populations and then allow comparisons in that respect as well. And if somebody was conferred or, or received a purple art, then that is something that denotes more of a battle injury versus a non-battle injury. And sure, you can have non-battle injuries that occur as you're, as you're going towards an objective we're coming off an objective, and so a battle injury is a battle injury no matter where you have it in phase of operation. If it's something that was is done by an enemy force and categorized as a hostile homicide versus a non-battle injury, which can occur in multiple different locations on a battlefield, but may not involve a hostile force or an enemy force. And that would include a suicide? Right, that is exactly right. And so another lexicon or, or term to be familiar with is manner of death. And so oftentimes forensic pathologists, pathologists will use manner of death. And with manner of death, basically what you're looking at is you're looking at accidents, homicides, natural causes of death, suicides, or undetermined manners of death. And so manners of death are split up in different ways because there are different circumstances behind each one of those manners of death. And so, yes, the DNBI includes accidents, suicides, and sometimes there are some overlap in different areas, but uh, for the most part, for battle injuries, it's primarily homicides that we're talking about, and specifically hostile homicides. Okay, another couple of terms that I'd like to clarify is KIA and DOW, so killed in action and died of wounds. What, what's the difference there? And so as you're looking at the battlefield, and what you can say is that there's a certain amount of care that can be done in the pre-hospital environment, and then there's care that can be done in a hospital environment. And through the years, the, the definition, it has evolved. What I, what I mean by that is that oftentimes pre-hospital and hospital had specific terms historically. And just to be clear, sometimes that includes surgical assets and sometimes it's a doc. And so pre-hospital are things that do not include surgical assets or major surgical assets or capabilities versus hospital does have surgical capabilities. And so the distinction for killed in action versus out of wounds is specifically killed in action is pre-hospital battle injuries that result in death. And died of wounds is hospital battle injuries 
that die of their wounds in a hospital setting. That can be a role two, a role three, or a role four. Role two is like a forward surgical team. A role three is like a combat support hospital and theater. A role four is like a garrison hospital, either overseas or in the continent of the U.S. In the last couple of definitions, and, and you use this in your paper and make a, a significant distinction between the two, is a survivable injury and a preventable death. What's the difference between those two? It's injury survivability versus death preventability. When you talk about injury survivability, that can be grouped into three different terms, non-survivable, intentionally survivable, and survivable. For death preventability, that can be grouped into three different terms too, non-preventable, potentially preventable, and preventable. And so pretty much when you're talking about injury survivability, basically there are assumptions of ideal circumstances. So like immediate knowledge of all the injuries, immediate availability of all level one trauma capabilities. And so with that, that is ideal circumstances. And the reason why we use ideal circumstances, I mean, as we're reviewing these deaths, we know everything that occurred. And so we had that luxury of knowledge of what happened versus somebody who just receives a casualty and don't have the benefit of opening up everywhere and seeing where all the, the injuries occur and underlying injuries, what, what they are. And the reason why we do it that way in under ideal circumstances is so that Hopefully, we can, we can get some lessons learned from that in order to help advance diagnostics and therapeutics in the future. It also helped folks in the research lane to be able to answer some of those questions as well. Versus death preventability. Death preventability are actually determinations based on the reality of actual circumstances. And so that's tactical influences of the, of the environment and of the enemy. And oftentimes, it results in, in limitations on optimal and timely care. Those are just things that are hard to get around. However, helps you to look at things from a standpoint of, of tactics, techniques, and procedures, and maybe also look at uh, secondary prevention through personal protective equipment. And so that's the reason why we use both of those. And we've actually defined those terms through the years. And that matter of fact, there have been hundreds of folks that have looked at all these terms and they finally came up with what's called the uh, Department of Defense Joint Trauma Lexicon. And that Joint Trauma Lexicon, they initially started looking at these issues and these terms back in 2013-2014 as a, as a large group. And with it, put out the uh, Joint Trauma Lexicon, I believe that was as, as early as 2018-2019. I think it was always 2019. It was put out in the Defense Health Agency Procedural Instruction 6040.03. And specifically, that appendix had 24 different terms that were defined to help people as they progress forward. One of the things that they also did was, was showed where those definitions came from, if they were already in the, in the DOD system. So, for example, whether it was from a joint publication, a Department of Defense directive, or a Department of Defense instruction, or whether it was came from a defense holiday agency procedural instruction. And so all those terms include some of the terms that we just discussed, which include non-preventable death and non-survivable injury or injury survivability and death preventability. It includes the definitions for roles of care. It includes definitions for prolonged field care and TC3, wounded in action, in killed in accident, died of wounds. And so all those definitions can be found in one source. Um, all you have to do is uh, you can use your browser and, and look up joint uh, duty, joint trauma lexicon, 
It's also on the Joint Trauma System website, as well as the Military Health Systems website. And I think that that helps so that people can start from a standard understanding of terms prior to, to writing different manuscripts into then separating data into different categories. In the paper, you say the, the death could have been prevented or maybe not prevented based on what was on the ground at the time, right? You're in an FST, you've got this amount of equipment, you've got this kind of specialties. It wasn't preventable given that, but it was survivable if they were at a level one trauma center. My question is, is you only looked at the medical assets when you determined preventable death. You didn't also look at, well, if they had better body armor, it could have been prevented. If they had better vehicle up armoring could have been prevented. If they had different tactics, they probably wouldn't have been in that situation so that death would have been prevented. You're just looking at from strictly the medical standpoint. Basically, if the tactical environment prevented optimal and timely delivery of care. And so that's what we're looking at is just that optimal and timely delivery of care. It doesn't look at whether it was if you had different PPE or personal protective equipment or, or different type of vehicles, all that sort of stuff, you're exactly right. It has to do with the medical care rendered and whether or not the tactical environment imposed a limitation on the delivery of optimal and timely care. So how did you actually determine survivability and preventability? Did you have a group of experts? How was that determined? So yes, basically this study specifically used a mortality review panel that was comprised of four trauma surgeons, two forensic pathologists, a pre-hospitalist, and two epidemiologists. And so the, the voting members for determining injury survivability were, well, everybody had input. And, and basically amongst the trauma surgeons and the forensic pathologists, they would debate different injuries based on what they were seeing on autopsy and what they were seeing in the medical records as far as what, what care was being provided and how it was being provided and what was actually specifically done. And so every document that could be reviewed was reviewed by everybody for that panel. And, and so it errs on the side of survivability in order to generate a good diagnostics and therapeutics and research in those realms. And so if there was anything that we, that could have been done under ideal circumstances, and remember that the ideal circumstances are difficult to, to have. In other words, you know everything in every injury. There's no time elapsed and you have all level one capabilities right there. That's ideal circumstances. And so for, for injury survivability, the group looks at all these different injury patterns and the easier part is through the years, what has evolved is, is a good list of things that fall under more catastrophic or, or devastating type injuries. And so those individuals comes to consensus very quickly. So individuals that have had like a physical dismemberment, cervical cord at or above the level of C3 that has been severed, cardiac hepatic avulsions, thoracic aorta, thoracic vena cava, other type of injuries that historically through time, that through multiple different mortality reviews, there has been agreement that these are non-survivable type injuries. And so those usually can be determined relatively quickly. 
And then on the other side of the spectrum, the survivable ones are usually ones where, where everybody is confused as to how that person or why that person would have died. And so th those usually are, are on the survivable side. And then the harder ones are, are debating the ones that are potentially survivable. And those are ones that, that may still have multiple, t multiple injuries and still the complexity of, of injury patterns make it a little bit harder because each individual injury may be more survivable or potentially survivable, but all of them together collectively may make it a little bit less survivable. And so those are all difficult cases, but to go through them and come to a consensus on, on which ones are potentially survivable. For the death preventability, say it's a matter of looking at the tactical scenarios and looking at the environment and the enemy. And so, for example, weather prohibits aircraft from evacuating casualties. And so it prevents or limits optimal and timely care. For example, surgical care is delayed because of weather or right in the middle of a firefight and unable to bring aircraft in without incurring additional casualties. And so that is another thing that is uh, an imposed limitation on optimal and timely care. Then the panel also looks at that and determines which ones are, are non-preventable or potentially preventable or preventable. And the other aspect of that is remembering that if they're non-survivable injuries, that's automatically non-preventable deaths. If they have potentially survivable or survivable injuries, that then you look at potentially preventable or preventable deaths. In your paper, there are some large data charts, and we could spend hours talking about your findings. But looking overall, what did you think was the most surprising finding for you? And which one do you think needs the most attention now? And so I want to take a moment and go back in time here. And so during, during the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq and the, and the five combat operations that I talked about, Earlier, the first comprehensive analysis of fatalities came from John Holcomb and his colleagues, and they looked at 82 fatalities from the Special Operations Command. And with that, he set up certain parameters for studying and doing mortality reviews. And then from that time, that evolved into Dr. Kelly and his colleagues did a study looking at fatalities from Iraq and Afghanistan. And then Dr. Eastridge did a large a review of fatalities in Afghanistan and Iraq and subsequent after that is is a is a huge population study from SOCOM again that Dr. Mazowski did on SOCOM fatalities or US Special Operations Command fatalities. And then there was another uh, study on Operation New Dawn, which was in Iraq. And then this final one for Operation Inherit Resolve and Operation Freedom Sentinel. In each one of them have unique aspects that are unique to those operations for fatalities. And that's why it's important, once again, I had mentioned it before, to look at each one of these kind of separately so that you can you can see the distinctions or see the different things that have occurred. And so specifically, what I'd, what I'd say is that for OIR, and we also saw this in O&D, was the increase in suicides, and so that was unique to OIR and O&D. Uh, well, actually, what you saw is you saw more DNBI or disease non-battle injury deaths in both OIR and O&D. 
And both of those, you, you saw specifically more suicides and natural manners of death than from accident, which has been observed more frequently as a DNBI in OFS. Also, OIR and OND have more in common in that respect than OFS. However, the percentage and number of suicides in OIR were just more than the percentage and number of suicides in OD and OFS combined, which was an interesting finding. And folks can talk about different factors like individuals with pre-existing mental illness or post-traumatic stress or multiple previous combat deployments. However, these factors don't explain the difference in those suicide rates, rates between the operations, especially between OIR and OFS as they were occurring concurrently. Sure, there are differences in, in support personnel and National Guard Reserve and versus those that were full-time active duty. However, I, I think that there's some additional study that's needed for the OIR population. And, and so we could not come up with, uh, with adequate answers here, but I think that it does warrant further investigation. How did the case fatality rates compare between all of those five named operations? And, and first, can you just explain how that case fatality rate is calculated? Okay, so you've got to go back in time once again to another Dr. Holcomb article where he looked at combat casualty care statistics, specifically in the setting of combat casualty care, the case fatality rate is applied to battle injuries, as historically been done from Dr. Holcomb's initial article to current date. However, there's been a more recent discussion about maybe having separate case fatality rates for non-battle injuries and for battle injuries. That way, you're able to actually look at those rates through time. And, and so that may be something that happens in the future. Looking at the case fatality rate through time, I also want to go back and actually Dr. Holcomb illustrates this very nicely in a 2006 article of the Combat Casualty Care Statistics. So you, so you had rates at about 19 when you talked about World War II for case fatality rate, which came down to 15, 16 during the Vietnam conflict, and then which has subsequently has come down to below 10, depending on which article that you read for both the duration of, of Afghanistan and for the duration of Iraq. However, specifically, when you look at work case fatality rates within OND and then also within OIR and OFS for this specific study, it helps to look at it from that smaller grouping and being sure in the definition for case fatality rates. The case fatality rate for OIR was, was 5.3%. And, and so basically, as this calculation is done, is by taking KIA and DIDA wounds and then dividing that by KIA and wounded in action. Wounded in action is comprised of two components. That's those individuals who get to a hospital that live and those individuals that get to a hospital and die or died of wounds. And so you have your total battle injuries as the denominator, and you have your total fatalities of both KIA and died of wounds as your numerator. And so that OIR of 5.3% for case fatality rate was different, especially as you look at it that in comparison to OFS, which was 9.1%. And part of it, you got to remember, is that these are lower numbers 
as you're looking at this. And, and so larger studies will look at all the deaths through time. But once again, the nuances of each operation may give you lower numbers, but can give you a feel for case fatality rates and doing comparisons between different combat operations, as in specifically in this case, between OI or OFS. We know that the case fatality rates have, have gone down to less than 10% given this type of conflict where we tend to have air superiority, good evacuation. Now, we may not be able to expect that low of a case fatality rate in a near-peer large-scale combat operation. Is that correct? So I think there are a lot of things that we're uncertain of. And these two conflicts from Afghanistan and Iraq, we have come up with some novel things. And one of those novel things is the Joint Trauma System in Department of Defense Trauma Registry, or DODTR. And so we've amassed more data during these conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq than we have historically, which is a good thing. And so we've learned how to collect and analyze those data for performance improvement. And it doesn't mean that we haven't done that historically. It's just that we've gotten better at collecting those data. And so there are a lot of things that hopefully we can, we can put in place and that if another conflict does occur and if it's a large-scale combat operation in the future, we can apply similar methodology, data, and statistics in order to conduct performance improvement for large-scale combat operations as well, which will have its challenges if it's truly large-scale and has that many fatalities and that many casualties that are coming in on a daily basis. So the answer is we, we don't know what we don't know. But I would submit that probably there might be an increase in, in case fatality rate due to the Walker dip, which is a, a dip in, in knowledge and understanding that may occur in an interwar period. So that may be part of a reason for having an increase in case fatality rate at the onset of the next conflict. Another one is that the difference in the conflicts, like you just illustrated. And so until medical systems can ramp up and evolve to large-scale combat operations and providing care in that setting and evacuation in that setting, there might be a dip in care or an increase in, in case fatality rate. And so, yes, I don't know that answer, but there may be some temporary elevations in case fatality rate until the medical system can, can meet the challenge of a large-scale combat operation. I thought an interesting part of your paper included the prevalence of coronary and or aortic atherosclerosis, as well as calculating the BMI from autopsy reports. Were there any aha findings when you looked at these data and any opinions on how that might impact potential garrison care to ensure ready medical force? Overall, part of what we need to do is look at our procedures for not only understanding death from injury, but from disease, and see what we can do in order to guide preventive measures for disease. And so, so an aha moment, I think that a part of the reason for doing that was just following the lead of those during Vietnam that did something similar and looked at underlying atherosclerosis in those folks that had died of injury. And that was repeated initially by Weber, and he published that in JAMA back in 2012. He looked at prevalence and risk factors for autopsy, determined atherosclerosis amongst uh, U.S. service members from 2001 to 2011, so at least during the first 10 years. And so using the guidelines that 
set forth by Weber, we've actually done this analysis of underlying atherosclerosis for uh, previously for the Special Operations Command and for Operation New Dawn, and then again for Operation Freedom Sentinel and Inherit Resolve. And so I think integrating that into the military mortality review process is going to be helpful. But as far as an aha moment, it's just, it's more of a reinforcement that we need to understand what this means, underlying illnesses. And so do we need to do a better job of pre and post deployment screening as well as prophylactic medical therapy? Do we need to optimize what folks are doing that may have an underlying untoward effect towards their performance? And so just like in the civilian community where they may have myocardial infarctions and, and atherosclerosis, we need to figure out things that can better diagnose and mitigate atherosclerosis in, in our military population as well. You also found that 80% of the non-suicide fatalities were due to catastrophic tissue destruction. And you've already explained that kind of by definition, those were deemed non-survivable and therefore non-preventable. But of the remaining injuries that were deemed survivable, approximately 15%, four of 28, were also deemed potentially preventable. What can be gained from examining those cases that were deemed survivable and potentially preventable? For those that are non-survivable, you can still get lessons learned. And some of those may not be medical lessons learned, but maybe in the form of primary or secondary prevention. So in other words, preventing an injury from occurring at all through tactics, techniques, and procedures. And then same thing as far as secondary prevention through personal protective equipment. Now, now with those that have potentially survivable or even survivable injuries, it's, it's a matter of looking at, sure, you can still look at TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures and personal protective equipment, but also looking at tertiary prevention of morbidity and mortality through what is done through medical care or, or diagnostics and therapeutics. And so those can tell us a story of how we can make improvements not only in the hospital realm, but in the pre-hospital realm. And, and sometimes uh, some of those things can help to evolve earlier care. One, one prime example, so Brian Eastridge, since his manuscript in 2012, has stated in his evaluation of 4,596 fatalities at the time that hemorrhage was a, a primary component and mechanism of death. And, and that continues to be a theme in all these military trauma mortality reviews is that hemorrhage is a primary component of death. And sure, there are other components that may be involved as well. Sometimes it's hemorrhage and other components. Sometimes it's just other components. But hemorrhage seems to be that primary one that we need to continue to sort of resolve. And, and with that, that can be extremity hemorrhage or that can be junctional hemorrhage that occurs in the, in the axilla and groin and neck regions, or that can be a thoracic hemorrhage that occurs elsewhere on the body, either in the, in the chest or abdominal regions. And so with all those, it's sort of modifying and hopefully improving both diagnostics and therapeutics in the pre-hospital and hospital environment, and actually moving as much as possible into an, an earlier scenario or capability, and blood is being one of those. And so not only should we stress hemorrhage control in the pre-hospital environment, but we should stress early provision blood products. And if whole blood is not available, then 
than other components would be helpful. But providing early blood products has already been shown to to decrease mortality. And, and Dr. Shackelford showed that in her previous manuscript on the issue. And so, so yes, that's what we can learn from those that are deemed potentially survival and survival. So in your paper, you had the luxury of kind of looking back in the retrospective scope. You had all the data, you had the autopsy data helped you make or identify survivable, preventable injuries. Now we use things with anatomic injury severity measures like the ISS, the new ISS, MAIS, to try and predict maybe survivability or preventability. What is being done in that area kind of as it's happening to help you better understand what is survivable and what could be prevented? So initial injury injury and severity scores were developed by the automotive industry. And with it, some of the earlier versions for injury severity scores were geared more towards or leaned more towards blunt type injuries, specifically as you're looking at motor vehicle collisions and aircraft mishaps and all those type of things. However, uh, as civilian and military physicians have gotten together and discussed those things, there have been developments into military injury severity scores and the new injury severity score. And I think with the new injury severity score, that that actually takes into consideration multiple injuries within one body region versus the injury severity score, which primarily looks at the three greatest wounds in three different body regions. However, all of them have their limitations. And so trying to progress from there, based on the comprehensive data that we're getting now, may lend itself to novel approaches for metrics to include network models. And so we, we had an individual that worked with the joint trauma system by the name of Judd Yannick, and he was an epidemiologist. He published a paper called Patterns of Anatomic Injury and Critically Injured Combat Casualties, a network analysis, and he published that in one of nature's journals. And with that, he had looked at an approach that recommended a three-tiered process to sort of inform trauma mortality reviews, and that's identifying unique patterns of anatomic injuries for critically injured fatalities versus survivors by body region and severity. And then also exploring specific injuries within these patterns that can be further understood to the context of medical data. So whether it's pre-hospital, hospital, and forensic data that's reviewed by subject matter, matter experts, and then linking all these to medical interventions opportunities for improvement to these specific anatomical patterns of injury. And so the hard part is that as you look at those network models, they are very complex. And so it starts to take into consideration the differences, for example, between blast and gunshot wounds, and then the differences in what you actually see of having multiple different injuries in different locations and how that has an effect on either surviving or being a fatality. I think that has to be an area that we look at a little bit more detail. The complexity will be a little bit more difficult, but I think that that can add into the military trauma mortality review and any type of mortality review that is conducted in the future. So I'm looking at the authorship on your paper, and it's kind of like a who's who of the study of combat casualty care. You got a lot of superstars on here. How was it working with that group, and, and what is next for this group? So, so absolutely phenomenal. And so, like I mentioned before, we have a couple of epidemiologists with Dr. Yannick and Dr. Howard. Yeah, we have multiple forensic pathologists and the radiologists from ACMEs with Armed Forces Medical Examiner's System with, with Dr. Rohr and Dr. Mezahowski and Dr. Herkey. 
And then we had four great trauma surgeons with Dr. Holcomb, Dr. Eastridge, Dr. Gurney, and Dr. Shackleton. And to all of them, they have been intimately involved with the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. They all have a great understanding in their perspectives and opinions from where they're coming from and their backgrounds, whether it be from epidemiology or be from combat casualty care in a hospital or, or pre-hospitalist like myself or from doing pathology and forensic pathology. And so all wonderful. So next is, and you alluded to it earlier when you talked about potentially survivable injuries and fatalities. And so there's a project that's being worked on now where we're we taking 100 fatalities that were deemed to have potentially survivable injuries. And now we're looking at it in fine detail for what specific detailed procedures could have been done in the pre-hospital, in hospital environment, more so than just the opportunities for improvement that, that we listed in this manuscript, but getting specific into the different procedures that can be done across the board in order to affect a greater survival. That is coming out this next year. And we, we all met, and that was actually had eight trauma surgeons that were involved in this analysis. And hopefully you'll see that sometime over the next year. Well, I'm sure hope that the folks that are interested in combat casualty care get an opportunity to read this paper and hopefully listen to this podcast. If you could give us your 30-second elevator speech about why this paper is important and why people should take the time to read it, can you give us that? Understanding death from both injury and disease guides preemptive and responsive efforts to reduce death among military forces. And, and so what that question reminded me of was a conversation I had with Dr. Kirby Gross, who was a previous director of the Joint Trauma System. And what we talked about and what he alluded towards was, it was a vignette that occurred back in 1953, where the U.S. Army Air Corps, which became the Air Force, sought the help from the statistical research group that was near Columbia University to solve a problem. And one of their mathematicians was a guy by the name of Abraham Wald, who was asked specifically about what to do about airplanes being shot down. And, and they wanted to know where they had extra armor for vulnerable parts of the plane. And so knowing that too much armor would make the planes too heavy to fly properly, they couldn't add extra armor over their entire plane. They asked Abraham Wald to tell them how much armor and where to put it. And so they gave them data and statistics where they captured data for where the bullet holes that hit the planes that had returned from combat. And the, the answer that he gave was surprising. And he said, well, it should be the engines instead of the, the locations where you have all these bullet, bullet holes that should be where the bullet holes are not because those aircraft did not come back. And so what that did was it alluded towards survivorship bias. And so then as we look at the importance of doing mortality reviews, we should remember that. And that in the early days, as we're collecting data, it's easier to collect data on those that survive and come back. And so with the Department of Defense Trauma Registry, it's full of data on survivors and those who died of wounds that did make it to a hospital. However, it did not have data from those who were killed in action. And then some of those who died of wounds as well didn't have all those data. And so it's equally important to integrate in those who passed away as it is those who survived. And so hopefully that, that story from Abraham Wald was helpful in that respect. We've been speaking with Dr. Russ Kotwal on WarDoc's podcast. 
Russ, thanks again for sharing your insights and answering our questions about this important military medicine paper. And thank you for your service to the nation. Doug, thank you very much for having me today. It's absolutely a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.